My name is Joe Masiri, and I will be your host today as we are discussing the impact of oral therapies in lymphoma treatment. And we have some great guests to speak with you today, including Dr. Jorge Castillo, a lymphoma expert from the Dana-Farber Cancer Research Institute, and Lou Kleppinger, a lymphoma patient and survivor. Both of you, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for including us. The pleasure is truly mine. Thank you. Lou, it's good to see you again. It's been a while. I've had the, uh, the pleasure of speaking with you before, um, and I always uh, appreciate your sunny outlook. So I, I want to start with you um, okay. because I think the importance of sharing your experience is so valuable to people who are just discovering um, their own diagnosis. So can you take me back to your situation when you were first diagnosed and talk about what you went through? Sure, I'm happy to. And greetings to all of you listening in today. Um, in August of 2012, I was experiencing severe symptoms, 10% weight loss, daily nosebleeds, extensive night sweats, as if I jumped into a swimming pool three times a night, blurry vision, enlarged lymph nodes, severe leg cramps. One week after diagnosis in August of 2012, I started chemotherapy on my 30th wedding anniversary, which lasted for 18 months and 50 infusions. And you won't be surprised, I was extremely distressed to have cancer. So my husband, Tony, was my rock. He stood by me every day, every step of the way, and he was just tremendous. I also had a little four pound toy poodle who sat on my lap for 18 months of chemotherapy. So my treatment was bortezomib, dexamethasone, and rituximab, also called BDR. And in 2013, Dr. Stephen Trion, who's the director of the Bing Center for Wallenstroms at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Harvard, put me on an extra year of BDR. And I had a tremendous response to that step that he took, which lasted for five years. I literally felt normal for that entire period, and it was such a gift of life he gave me. Both Dr. Trion and Dr. Castillo are recognized as world-renowned experts in my rare disease, which is Wallenstrom's macroglobulinemia of rare lymphoma. And in 2014, I had the honor of becoming Dr. Castillo's patient. And Dr. Castillo, can you believe we've been together now for eight years. It's amazing to believe that. So he's, he responds to me immediately and all of my concerns. I'm so grateful to you, Dr. Castillo. And I'll never forget what you said to me upon our first meeting because I had had treatment just as we were uh, getting acquainted. And when I met you, you said you're doing really, really great. Go live and have fun. And I did just that. I don't know if you remember, but it, it's emblazoned in my brain. And um, so I was, I, I was just thrilled uh, with your advice. And I went, started swimming again and jet skiing with my brother. I, I started doing a lot of things that are a lot of fun for me. I was also at that time passionate about giving back to both of my doctors because of the life-giving treatment they gave to me. 
So in that regard, I have volunteered for uh, the International Wallenstrom's Macroglobal Anemia Foundation, and clearly with the Lymphoma Research Foundation. And it's been a great honor to do that. I've had many exciting assignments like this one today, Joe and Dr. Castillo. And so that is my history, which brings us up to the present, and I'll let you take it from there. Well, Dr. Castillo, I want to say that in my interactions with Lou, she has been taking that advice to live a full and happy life uh, to the fullest. And I'm sure you've seen the same from her. Uh, her, her energy, her outlook is infectious. And I always appreciate uh, the time that I get to spend with her. So I'm glad that you gave her that advice. Um, and, and I want you to know that if you don't already, that she is clearly living that out. Um, so I want to talk a, a little bit about Lou's treatment here and, and your perspective of it. Uh, she mentioned the beginning, and, and we talked a little bit here uh, about the, the change in treatment and her response to it. So when we talk about oral therapies, what are they for patients who might not be familiar, and how does it differ from the traditional uh, treatment that options that might be out there? Yeah, no, thanks, uh, Joe. I mean, um, so uh, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to be able to, you know, connect with patients in this in this manner. Uh, I think everything that we do uh, in the laboratory, in clinical trials, is directed uh, at making patients feel better, and then, you know, like like Lou, essentially live their life the best the best way they can and feel make them feel normal, right? So. Um, when we think about traditional treatments, uh, we think about chemotherapy-based regimens. That's essentially what traditional treatments uh, mean. Uh, chemotherapy, uh, there are different multiple different types of chemotherapies, but the idea behind chemotherapy is that these treatments are given to patients, usually either injected or, or intravenously or under the skin. And these medications find their way into the malignant cells uh, each malignant cell has a nucleus inside where all the, you know, the DNA of the cell and they use that DNA to replicate. So these chemotherapies basically insert themselves into that DNA. And when the cell goes to multiply, induces some reading errors into that, into that process. And that doesn't, doesn't allow the cell to multiply. And then the cell dies in, in, you know, because of that. So it's a very effective way of, of killing malignant cells. And we've been using chemotherapy for decades now. Um, the problem with chemotherapy is that it also affects potentially the genes of other cells that could be multiplying at that same time and could induce mutations in these normal cells, not, not the malignant cells, the malignant cells are dying, but the normal cells sometimes can acquire these you know, mutations that we are you know, inducing because of the treatment. So it's a kind of a, a side effect, a collateral damage and it doesn't happen often, but there is a, a proportion of, of these uh, agents that can induce this type, of, this type of problems. And in addition to that, the side effects that come with it, right? So the cells that are multiplying rapidly are the ones that get affected by chemotherapy. So people lose their hair, they start you know, having diarrhea, they start having some mouth sores. So any, any of the cells that are rapidly reproducing get affected by it. So um, how do we move uh, you know, away from that, you know, I'm, I don't want to say to try to avoid it, but rather, you know, to give another option to patients, right? Um, chemotherapy remains one of the standard treatments for patients with, with lymphomas and cancers of many different types. Uh, but then how do we provide additional options to patients? And this is where these oral targeted agents uh, come into place. Um, a targeted agent just works a little bit different. 
So what happens is you have a malignant cell, right? And within the cell, we have the nucleus with the DNA and all that. But the nucleus is untouched for, by these oral agents. The nucleus and the DNA uh, is untouched. But what happens inside the cell is this cell has a specific mechanisms that they use to survive, right? Um, so it's like, it's like having a, a car that has been fixed to go faster, right? So there's some tricks that are being, that are being used for these malignant cells to survive and perform, overperform the normal cells. So uh, understanding, you know, that's what laboratory research comes into place to try to understand how these lymphoma cells, what pathways they're using, right? Uh, because we all have those pathways, all the normal cells have those pathways, but the malignant cells tend to use those pathways, uh, you know, at a higher uh, level so they can immortalize themselves, right? So they don't die when they're supposed to die or to proliferate faster, so multiply faster than the normal cells. So these pathways are the targets, right? So, um, you know, we have different lymphomas that, that uh, use, you know, that we have been doing a lot of research on that use these oral agents, follicular lymphoma patients, marginal some lymphoma patients, Waldenstrom patients, mantle cell lymphoma patients, uh, patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, all these diseases have been studied to the point that we now understand these pathways a little bit better. So the oral agents that patients are taking, the medications go and they block the pathway. You know, instead of getting into the DNA and causing mutations in the DNA, it, it just blocks the pathway uh, of activation, of survival of these malignant cells, and that inactivates the malignant cells kills the malignant cells in some cases and controls the disease. So basically the end effect is very similar to chemotherapy, which is, you know, get rid of the disease or control the disease, but it does it in just a little bit different than chemotherapy does. And for that reason, the side effect profile is also very different between the oral agents and the chemotherapies. So you mentioned targeted uh, agents there. What is the difference between targeted and uh, immunomodulatory agents? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So uh, targeted specifically means that we are targeting a pathway, right? So just to give an example, uh, medications uh, like ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and zanubrutinib, those are BTK inhibitors. So the BTK pathway is important in multiple diseases, Waldenstrom's, in CLL, in mantle cell lymphoma. So you take these medications and these medications block the BTK pathway. So they are targeting BTK specifically, right? There are other medications, for example, uh, that block another pathway called the PI3K pathway. Uh, medications like idelalisib or copanlisib or duvelisib, also used for other, other malignancies, and they block that specific part. Now, immunomodulatory agents are a little bit different. Immunomodulatory agents are uh, agents that when you, when the patients take them or, or receive them, activates the immune system in a way that the immune system uh, works better to clean up the malignant cells. So uh, I think in short, what I can tell you is our immune system is supposed to get rid of cancer cells. That, that's, that's what is the, the ideal function of our immune system besides protecting against infections. Another function is protecting against cancer development. Uh, so our, when patients who develop some types of cancers, we could safely say that our immune system failed to remove those cancer cells. Hmm. So these immunodulatory agents are agents that are given to patients to actually stimulate the immune system to fight the malignant cells. That's a different way of attacking the cancer cells. So, so far we have talked about chemo, 
in inducing you know, DNA disruptions. We're talking about targeted agents blocking specific pathways within the cell. And then we have immunomodulatory agents that actually boost the immune system to try to get rid of the cancer cells. So there are three different mechanisms in, on how we use these anti-cancer agents to, to treat patients. That's so interesting to me. I, I've never heard it put that way before that our body is supposed to uh, remove the cancer cells and fight them and that it's actually a, a failure of our immune system uh, if we do get the diagnosis uh, of cancer. Um, I wanna bring Lou back into the conversation here. Why did Lou, why did your doctors um, initially suggest that you receive oral therapies as opposed to the traditional uh, treatment? And what was the first oral agent that you received? Okay, well, just to explain why I went on an oral agent, in 2019, I had a big spike in my Waldenstroms. And therefore, uh, it was advised that I go into treatment. So Dr. Castillo and I discussed it at great length. And as you can see, he's extremely well-informed and runs a lab that, that uh, really explains what all these things are about. So because the, the treatment I went on to is oral, it was one of the most advanced ones available. And I was quite excited, frankly, having had 50 infusions, which were painful, to go onto a pill. So the good news about ibrutinib, which, or Imbruvica, it's also called, that Dr. Castillo has placed me on has been extremely effective. And I'm so grateful for that. In the first three months, my IgM dropped by 85% and in six months by 95%. And I'm told that that's one of the best responses that my doctor has seen. So I'm so grateful for a pill because of the freedom it gives you. It makes you feel like you're not even a cancer patient anymore. Oh, that's fantastic. So uh, obviously, what, what was the biggest reason for that, feeling like you're not a cancer patient anymore for you uh, when you switched to the oral therapy? Well, for me, taking a pill instead of having infusions that are painful and time-consuming, I used to spend hours a day in infusions having needles put into my uh, blood, uh, my veins, and it, it was painful and a daily reminder of cancer. Now I take a pill every morning. I'm being treated exceedingly well, as I just described, and it's just a gift to swallow a pill and be done for the day. And as an end, I also feel great. I mean, it, it, it seems like it's it's a no-brainer uh, for from the patient's perspective then that this was just such a life-changing thing for you even as you're going through the treatment. So then I have to ask Dr. Castillo, how do physicians determine if oral therapies are appropriate for a patient in their treatment? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So um, I, I think the, the way, you know, we think about treatment uh, for patients with Waldenstrom's we have to base our decisions based on what we call evidence, scientific evidence. And that, that's exactly what I do uh, at the Dana-Farber. I create scientific evidence on the use of medications. So as uh, Lou alluded earlier to, uh, Dr. Steven Trion runs the laboratory at the Dana-Farber, and this is an example of how many other scientists are running you know, big laboratories in many parts of the country and the world to try to understand how these malignant cells work. 
So once we understand how they work, then we can identify these pathways that we can target. And then we develop, I mean, many other companies uh, develop, you know, these medications that are targeted against those specific pathways. And understanding that connection can help us run clinical trials, right? So clinical trials, in my, in my opinion, is the best way in which we can generate uh, that, those data that can help us treat patients better. So in a randomized study, we take a group of patients with a specific disease. You know, it could be Waldenstrom's, it could be CLL, it could be follicular lymphoma, it could be all of them, depending on what the study is all about. And then we expose a patient to a specific treatment. You know, and, and you know, we have specific expectations, you know. For example, we say, if I'm going to give a pill to a patient, you know, I want at least 50% of those patients to feel better or 50% of those patients to improve their hemoglobin or 50% of those patients to decrease their web cell counts or 50% of those to improve their, their IgM levels, right? So we go in with specific expectations and then we see at the end how these patients do. Now, that is different than just giving a patient randomly a medication and see how a patient does. You know, these are studies that are, you know, accumulate 30 patients, 50 patients, 100 patients, 200 patients. And in that way, we know in a more formal manner how actually these medications do work. Because not only we want to see the efficacy, right, of how these medications work, but also what the side effects are, you know. So we always, any intervention in medicine has potential benefits and potential problems, any intervention in medicine. So we need to be able to discuss with patients, this is the benefit that we saw with this intervention, but these are the potential side effects of this intervention, and they make a, make a decision balancing those out. So, so what are some of the side effects that we see when it comes to oral therapies? Yeah, I mean, uh, the side effects are, are multiple, and it really depends on the type of uh, medication that we're talking about. So uh, it's going to be very difficult for me to tell you, oh, yeah, these are the side effects for all the oral agents. There are so many different types of oral agents. Uh, so what I think I can tell you, there are the different groups. I mean, we have the BTK inhibitors. We have the PI3 kinase inhibitors. We have the ECH2 inhibitors. You know, so th there are so many different types of inhibitors out there that are being used for so many different types. Um, what I can tell you is that the side effect profile of oral agents tend to be a little different than the side effect profile of chemotherapy. And I think that is the important part to understand. I'm not telling you that they are better treatments. Uh, I, I'm not telling you that, uh, you know, the, the, every, nobody should use chemotherapy anymore. Uh, but I can tell you that these are options. You know, and I think it's important that a patient with a specific condition discuss with uh, his doctors or her doctors about what options are out there. You know, and the doctor so, will help discuss, you know, the good things and the bad things about each of those to be able to make the right decision for the patient. So with that being said, are there specific subtypes of lymphoma that oral therapies are currently being used for? Well, yeah. So uh, I would say, I mean, there are about 80 different types of lymphomas to begin with. So that's, that's a big group of, 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 malignant, of malignancies right there. Uh, but I think uh, when we think about the B B cell lymphomas, which is, you know, the majority of the lymphomas are B cell lymphomas. We have aggressive lymphomas and less aggressive lymphomas. I think the low, the less aggressive lymphoma group has benefited the most from these oral agents. And those are the diseases that we call, you know, follicular lymphoma, 
the small cell lymphomas, the lymphoplasmacytic or Waldenstrom lymphomas, mantle cell lymphomas, marginal cell lymphomas. Those are the ones that I believe uh, the oral agents have been the much more effective. You know, with the aggressive lymphomas, we're still using a lot of chemotherapy. Uh, we're adding now, adding some of the targeted agents to the chemotherapy, but the chemotherapy remains the main treatment for patients with aggressive diseases. So I think the, the indolent, uh, slow progressing lymphomas are the ones that have benefited the most from oral agents currently. All right, I want to bring Lou back in here. Lou, you heard Dr. Castillo say that sometimes there are these negative side effects uh, still with oral therapies. Did you experience any negative side effect uh, from your oral therapies that you took? Well, I want to start by answering you that when I was on, and I'm still on ibrutinib, for two years, I went with virtually no side effects. So that was such a gift. Later, um, I began to have some spontaneous bruising and some cramping in my torso, my fingers, and my feet. And um, frankly, they were tolerable for many, many months. I went with that and Dr. Castillo and I consulted often about it and, uh, and we agreed that it was acceptable to continue. But then they became significant. And so ultimately, and Dr. Castillo, I know is gonna address this for you. As a result, the dose of my ibrutinib was reduced from 420 milligrams to 280 milligrams. And that is intended to reduce your symptoms. Now that happened to me six weeks ago and I'm already feeling significantly better. So even though I've had side effects, uh, Dr. Castillo's action to correct that for me has been highly successful. And also the great news is my IgM, which is, as uh, I'm sure Dr. Castillo can explain, it's a protein, I believe, found in the immune system, which is used to measure the status of your Waldenstrom's. That IgM is holding strong. So in other words, the, uh, the ibrutinib is still effective and my side effects are decreasing significantly. Dr. Castillo, can you talk a little bit more about IgM and specifically uh, the way you decided to uh, impact change the dosage here for Lou in, in her specific situation? How common is that uh, for a patient and the doctor to discuss? Yeah, so I mean, I, I want to very specifically emphasize that, you know, IgM measurements are very relevant for patients with a specific disease called Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Uh, really, in other conditions, uh, they measure other, uh, you know, there are other measurements, uh, leaf node sizes and white blood cell counts, depending on which disease you have. But for Waldenstrom's, that's what IgM is the, the one of the main measurements. So patients typically start with a high IgM. And, and that's a reflection of the disease. And when we treat, the IgM actually goes down over time, which means that the treatment is working and the patients, hopefully with that, they are feeling better. Um, so, uh, you know, decreasing the dose of agents uh, that are used to be to treat cancer is actually very common. We do that with chemotherapy. You know, we have done this for years, uh, you know, whenever the patients are having too many side effects, we dial down the dose. And so that is something that we get to do, use relatively frequently. Now, uh, with ibrutinib specifically, and this is part of, of the research that we do at Dana-Farber uh, from the Waldenstrom perspective, we have a database of about 300 and some patients who are on, on ibrutinib currently. 
And uh, we have noticed that about a quarter of those patients do need to have a, decre a decrease in their dose, specifically because of uh, rashes or gastrointestinal problems or, or muscle pains or, or you know, many other potential uh, reasons. And we have actually studied these patients in whom we had had to decrease the dose because of toxicity. And we have been able to show that in the large majority of these uh, patients, the symptoms do improve with decreasing the dose, but the, the disease uh, remains in a good response. So it's not like you are decreasing the dose and then the disease basically takes off. No, the disease continues very, very nice, uh, well controlled, despite the fact that we have to decrease the dose. Uh, and again, we do that in clinical trials. Actually, when we do clinical trials, we built in dose reductions, uh, you know, depending if the patient are having potential side effects or not. And that translates into, into clinical care later on. When it comes to oral therapies, so much of the importance for the success is dependent on adherence. Uh, so can you talk about what this means when it comes to oral therapies, Dr. Castillo? Yeah, I mean, adherence is actually the key here, right? Uh, because when patients come over to get their infusions, injections, you get the injection, you're done, right? So you know, that, that's pretty much it. But with a pill, you have to take it every day. You have to remember to take it every day and you have to be very good at taking it every day. Now, adherence uh, can be a problem in some specific scenarios. Um, and uh, I think at the end of the day, what we would prefer is for patients to take their pills on a daily basis without, you know, missing a dose unless they have to. You know, sometimes there are some medication that need to be stopped because of surgeries to minimize bleeding, for example. You know, those are holds that need to be done. So that's not a missed dose precisely. Uh, but if, in our experience, uh, if, if you start missing more than 10% of the, of the dosing is when, you know, sometimes that can affect the efficacy of, of these treatments. So it's important for patients to, you know, be on top of this. And that's a discussion to be had as well, because there are some oral agents that are taking one pill per day, which is easier to take compared to two pills per day, to three pills per day or four pills per day. You know, so the more pills you have to take, the adherence could potentially be uh, potentially a problem as you move forward. But these medications do work better when you are taking the medication and you do not forget to take it. Yeah. And I think that sometimes maybe a patient feels that, oh, they missed one day, so they're going to double up on the next day or something like that. What do you say to patients in that situation? Yeah, that's, that's, that's really, really important. So uh, these medications are based on a maximum level of, you know, of efficacy. So doubling up is not is not something that we should be doing, <laughs> first of all, uh, because it's not safe, right? So you're going to be taking the, the fact that you didn't receive the medication the day before doesn't mean that you can take double the next day, right? Uh, we need to be mindful that every medication has potential side effects. And if we're taking the double the dose of what we're supposed to be taking, that actually increases the risk of having side effects from it too. And some side effects could be potentially problematic. <clears throat> so my recommendation to patients is take your medications every day. If you forgot one day, do not double up the next day. If you, uh, you know, let's say get some nausea and, and, you know, maybe you throw up and you think the pill came out, do not double dose that day. You know, so just try to make sure that you keep with, one, with what you're the maximum dose on a daily basis. Try to not double up, try to not double take the pills uh, at the best you can. So I, I want to ask Lou, how have you found uh, adhering to your own medications? Is it difficult? And, and do you have any tips or things that you use to stay on track? Abs I absolutely do. <clears throat> um, 
What, what I do is I set my iPhone alarm at 7 a.m. every morning. I'm one of those patients who takes one pill a day. So when my alarm goes off, I know it's time to take my pill. And also, I'm a person who organizes myself on paper. So I do have a chart that I follow, and I mark off what time every day I take it. And it's always within a few minutes of 7 a.m., uh, that's worked very well for me. I have never missed a dose, except when I've had surgery where Dr. Castillo has mentioned uh, that you go off for a few days before and after for that purpose. But for me, adherence has been easy. So if, if that's helpful for those of you listening in, you might try that and see if it works for you. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, also, I know that the Lymphoma Research Foundation has a, a tracking feature uh, in their Focus on Lymphoma app, so you can check that out as well if you need some help staying uh, on your schedule. Um, Lou, I, I want to stay with you for a second here because I'm curious, how long after you started taking your oral therapies did you see a, a significant difference and that you were on the right track to feeling better? Yes. In fact, I think I may have mentioned it in three months or just 12 weeks, my IgM, which Dr. Castillo did explain, dropped by 85%. Now that is a dramatic drop in a short time, I've been told. And then at the six month point, it dropped by 95%. So I've had a tremendous response to this pill. And as I said, it's a, a great gift for a cancer patient because you really can forget that you're sick. Ah, oh, that's fantastic. And I know you say the, the IgM dropped, but like in, in terms of the actual feeling for you, what, what was the feeling? Because we can see those numbers, but how did that translate to your well-being and, you know, everyday quality of life? Well, my quality of life is extremely good. I'm so fortunate for that. And I frankly have no, uh, well, I did have side effects, but they're under control with the reduced dose. So I feel great. I think I mentioned that I swim five days a week to stay fit and um, I'm enjoying life to the fullest and grateful for Dr. Castillo's uh, prescription to me of this pill. I love that. And so from your experience, what advice would you offer lymphoma patients who are considering oral therapies? Well, first and foremost, I think I would advise patients to be your own best advocate. <clears throat> and by that, I mean, learn everything you can about your disease, learn everything you can about your uh, treatment options. And extremely important, I know Dr. Castillo will agree, is that your own oncologist believes that the oral agent is appropriate and effective for you. So my thought is that if you can take the pill, I highly recommend you do it with enthusiasm because I think you'll find the freedom is just tremendously uh, welcome. Excellent. Dr. Castillo, um, for patients right now who might be dealing with lymphoma, um, is there any hope for the future regarding oral therapies? And are there any new or interesting things coming down the pike when it comes to oral therapies? Uh, I think there's plenty. Um, and so, I mean, oral therapies have become now a standard of care uh, in patients with some of these lymphomas. Uh, in some lymphomas, actually, uh, the pill therapies have shown to be better than chemotherapy. Uh, 
you know, I mean, not specifically in Waldstrom's, but in, in a condition called chronic lymphocytic leukemia, we are seeing, you know, back and back um, a number of studies that are showing that these uh, pills can actually be better than chemotherapy previously in terms of the efficacy of it. The side effects obviously differ, as we talked about before. So um, I think one of the issues with these uh, pills, uh, a couple of issues. Number one, these are usually indefinite therapies, which means patients need to be taking them uh, and they con should continue taking them for as long as the medication works. And that implies that patients might need to be taking, you know, years of, of, of pills. Um, it, onibrutinib specifically, which is the case here, uh, you know, Lou, uh, we will have patients who have been onibrutinib for nine years and they continue taking ibrutinib every day. So one of the um, movements in terms of advancing the, the, the science or the field is to try to see how we can come up with treatments that are finite. You know, can we provide uh, oral agents, non-chemo treatments that you don't have to be taken indefinitely, right? So that's one of the, the I think there's a number of clinical trials <laughs> ongoing to try to see if we can actually get there. Uh, number two, um, insurance coverage, you know, is something that we have to talk about. Um, uh, parenteral agents, meaning injected agents, uh, either intravenous or subcutaneous, are medications that insurances typically pay for, you know, uh, fully and without copays because they are administered in an infusion room. But when we talk about pills, um, you know, the, the patient's insurances typically cover a good amount of it. Um, but then there's sometimes some copays that could be, some of them could be probably hefty. So that is also, you know, shouldn't, but it, but, but it does play a role in terms of, you know, the acceptance of these medications. Uh, and so developing uh, newer uh, agents that are of finer duration, lower cost is also important. Now, these agents uh, have uh, side effects, right? And um, I think the future research, besides focusing on the duration of therapy and being more effective and maybe cheaper, also we need to start looking at uh, hopefully other agents that have maybe more benign side effects. I mean, we're not naive. I'm not naive, I think. <laughs> and I don't think there will be a medication out there that has no side effects, right? I don't think that's ever going to going to be the case. But if we, as more treatment options come down the road, then at least if we can modulate those side effects to make them more tolerable and more benign to patients will be ideal. And I think what is coming down the road is combination treatments. I mean, when I start combining these oral agents with other agents, whether with chemotherapy or with other treatments to try to make them more effective. So I think this is where how clinical research advances has been advancing this way for the last decades. And I think we'll continue advancing this way for the next decades, you know, more effective treatments, less toxic treatments, maybe shorter duration, you know, less costly, you know, that's essentially the way we, we are looking at, at how we advance the science here. Well, that sounds great that we're making those new, new fronts and, and definitely uh, a lot of factors to consider when, when making these decisions. We have a question here from someone who's watching. I wanted to uh, ask you, Dr. Castillo, they're asking, is there any disadvantage when it comes to a wat, uh, watch, uh, excuse me, a wait and watch approach? Yeah, well, uh, it, uh, typically, typically it's not. And again, we need to define, you know, what disease are we talking about, right? right. So uh, if we think about low-grade lymphomas, right, like lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, CLL, marginal sound lymphoma, and things, lymphomas of that nature, I think if a patient is essentially asymptomatic, uh, I think watchful waiting makes a lot of sense. And for, for a number of reasons, uh, I think, number one, these diseases are, are not curable diseases. It's not that we're going to provide a treatment to cure somebody, number one. 
Number two, I don't think there is data or there are data uh, showing that if we treat somebody earlier in the disease process, we're actually prolonging the patient's survival. You know, I, I don't think we can say that either. And every treatment, as we talked about, has potential side effects, right? And now, if I treat somebody and I'm not curing the disease, when that disease comes back in the future, it's going to be just a little bit more difficult to treat, right? Because it will have learned how to fight that treatment, and that treatment will be a little less effective the next time around. So we create uh, some type of resistance uh, as we treat patients, right? So for all those reasons, I think it's important that, you know, if we make a diagnosis of a low-grade lymphoma, you know, if a patient is truly asymptomatic, then not treating is very, very reasonable. In patients with Waldershoms, which is my specialty, you know, we have about 20% of the patients that we diagnose and they have no symptoms, they are actually without symptoms for as long as 10 years. 20%, that's one out of five. Wow. So, um, wow. you know, watching is actually a very reasonable approach in, in a specific group of patients. So we have um, a, a bunch of viewers that have just hopped on here. Uh, we are talking about oral therapies when it comes to the treatment of lymphomas. Um, right now we are speaking with Dr. Jorge Castillo of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So uh, Dr. Castillo, I, I just wanna review for the people who may have just come on here. If you were to give the most three important things that we've discussed here today that patients should take away from this as it pertains to oral therapies, what were the would the top three things that you want them to leave with be? Yeah, I think number one is uh, they have to educate, the patient has to educate themselves about this, right? I mean, they have to read about the drug, they have to understand how it works, they have to ask all the right questions to their treating physicians so, so they are comfortable with the decision that they're making. So I think educating themselves is actually a very important aspect of things. Now, when they are on the drug, they have to be, um, they have to adhere to the drug. They have to take the medication. They have to um, make sure that they're taking it uh, based on the recommendations that are provided by their doctors because adherence is going to be the key for sustainability, right? So the, the much, patients are going to do better and they're going to stay on medication feeling well longer, you know, as long as they're taking the medications the way they should. But on the other hand, also they need to be vigilant of their own potential uh, side effects that they could be experiencing. Uh, I think it's better to, uh, you know, overshare <laughs> with your doctor what side effects you might be having rather than, than kind of, you know, uh, kind of uh, let, them, let them be. I think it's better if, if you know, you're, you're more proactive in that sense and you communicate very well with your, with your team to make sure that, you know, you understand what side effects are related because of the disease and if any intervention is necessary for potential, for potential um, uh, side effects. You know, there are some side effects that are mild, you know, let's say a minor rash and, or minor joint pains, and those are not affecting your activities of daily living. Those are side effects that you could potentially live with. But if you're having diarrhea eight, eight times a day, <laughs> or, right, or you're having a palpitations and you think you might have an arrhythmia, that's a different story. You know, so I think it's better to, to be able to share with your doctors and communicate with your doctors very well. So educate yourself, take the medications every day, be vigilant of your side effects. Excellent. Uh, I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Castillo. Thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge. Lou Kleppinger, thank you so much for sharing your experience uh, and, and all of your insight. We really appreciate it. If you need any more information on oral therapies and adherence, you can check out the fact sheet uh, in the Oral Therapies Learning Center over on lymphoma.org. You can also reach out to their helpline. Help 
That number is, of course, on their website. Uh, please feel free to leave any of your questions as they continue here in the comments. Someone from the Lymphoma Research Foundation will reach out to you uh, with your answers. We do appreciate everyone participating in today's chat. I'm Joe Masiri. Thank you so much for tuning in to this Facebook Live brought to you by the Lymphoma Research Foundation. Have a great day, everybody. Mm -hmm.